that's good too. We're now into our third Roman ruler that's going to listen to Paul's explanation of what's going on and why all this arresting and all this stuff. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by Jews." Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While thus engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you. And this is a verse I'm going to highlight very closely now. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. And so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Messiah was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. 
And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. And the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had drawn aside, they began talking to one another saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. And now, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes. May we, by the Spirit, be illumined into understanding the significance of what is recorded in these pages of your word. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who brings light to darkened hearts and minds. May that happen even this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder how many of you have heard the news story in the last week or two about a group of boys, a soccer team, and their coach being stranded in a cave in Thailand. Anybody hear that story? Most and many of you did, yes. What a fascinating account. Uh, they successfully brought them out of this uh, almost two and a half mile cave. And uh, what an amazing situation. They're stuck in there. They went in before it started raining and they end up getting caught, left struck, uh, stranded in there because the rain then increased the height of the water. They couldn't get out. Nobody, none of the boys could swim. And they had no food after a period of time. There's no, no way out because they can't swim. They have to go underwater to swim for quite a distance, and they're starting to run out of oxygen, and the water is starting to rise. What a desperate situation in a dark, damp cave. What amazing feat was pulled off. Compassionate people, would courageous people gathered, put themselves at risk, including one Thai retired seal, uh, died in the attempt to try to extricate these, these boys out of there. Here are these helpless members of the soccer team, and these rescuers ventured into the dark. They would go through these narrow, twisting, turning with the jagged rocks, trying to seek to go through these frigid waters, swimming there to rescue them. And finally, after two and a half miles underwater, they brought them, after a number of days, I think it was like tenth day 10, they brought them food, and light and supplies and eventually they were able to have all the members of that team ushered out through specially designed scuba gear and they were all saved and rescued. Now if I've thought about that account I've thought to myself people leaving the places of light going into this cave of darkness 
Do you think any of those kids, once they saw these scuba divers, do you think they said, oh, I don't want out of here? Every single one of them, I'm sure, was willing to do whatever they were told to do to get out. And this is the image that's been on my mind this week. As I've considered this passage, particularly verse 18, because it's really talking and showing us the ministry of gospel evangelism is really a ministry by which we are called to bring light to people who dwell in spiritual darkness. The sad truth is that those who have darkened hearts and minds, spiritually speaking, they are in a situation that is characterized by under the captivity of the evil one, of the deceiver. And so therefore, their condition is not like these members of this soccer team, these boys, because the members of, this, of those who have darkened hearts and minds, spiritually speaking, they have a false sense of security. They think they are just fine apart from Christ. They also have a distorted sense of of value of what they think they've accumulated over their lifespan, of the material assets, of all the things that they have gathered around them, whether it's uh, material wealth, whether it's relational wealth, whether it's vocational wealth, having a job that's some big title somewhere, or some reputation or some accomplishment. They think that that wealth is something that's going to give them security ultimately. And oftentimes, because of their darkened hearts and minds spiritually, they are determined to retain control over their lives. They think and they want and they crave autonomy. They want to do what they want to do. They want to be in charge of their lives. And they think they can be in charge of their lives forever and ever. And there's a sad denial in those who have a darkened heart and mind, spiritually speaking. They're in a denial of their own mortality oftentimes. They're in denial of their own eternal, of the eternal miseries that await them if they do not come to Christ in places of torture like hell. Jesus even said, John 12, 35, He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Indeed, Jesus talked about the ultimate disaster is to be put into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sadly enough, Satan loves to blind the minds of those who are unbelievers so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And I'm convinced that that's what Paul was presenting before these individuals on this, the fourth occasion of him talking to these highfalutin uh, people who are uh, people of great power and significance in that day. But he's doing what we have a privilege to do, and that's to talk to ordinary common folk and folk who are important and significant and powerful people, whoever we want to talk to about Christ that we, the followers of Jesus, the citizens of the kingdom of light, we are called by God to shine the light of the gospel, gospel truth, and to live that gospel truth before them in such a way that they can then be set free from this darkness that they're caught in. Indeed, did you see Paul's testimony there in verse 18 of chapter 26? 
as he talks about his own stories, he talks about how God called him, as he talks about why he's doing what he's doing. He says God transferred him from the spiritual realm of darkness to the spiritual realm of light, and it is God himself who commissioned him, Jesus himself commissioned him, to open the eyes of people so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God. And so I'm looking at this text this morning. There's so many things that are, could be talked about and uh, pointed out, but I'd like to uh, think of this as Paul, with all of this gathering of important and successful and powerful people before him, he's sort of a symbol, I think, or illustration of the, what it means to be in the ministry of bringing the light of gospel truth to those who have darkened lives and hearts and there are two elements of this darkness, I think, that are found here for us uh, to think about the battle between him bringing light and to see the darkness begin to reject that light. So notice, first of all, that there is a shining of the light into the darkness of stubborn pride. Stubborn pride. Luke gives a number of details in this particular account uh, of Acts 26, of this audience that is gathering there in Caesarea. I've been to Caesarea, and it is a very, it has all sorts of Roman ruins there. It's a very significant city built right on the, on the coastline there. And they have an amphitheater that has like room for uh, 20,000 people, probably 15,000. So they're in this place and they're gathering. And notice we read in verse 23 that we have King Agrippa, and he is actually Herod Agrippa II. He is the son of the Herod Agrippa I in Acts 12. We'll talk about him in a second. Who put James to death. This is Herod Agrippa guy. He's there and he's got with him not his wife, Bernice. It's his sister with whom he is involved in a scandalous, incestuous relationship. And everyone around them is aware of all this. But notice it says, verse 23, that they gathered into the amphitheater amid great pomp. Can you imagine what it looked like? Here all of these people are making their way into this amphitheater, these powerful, high-ranking military personnel wearing all their uniforms and various things that show them as being powerful and all sorts of prominent people in the city. It's like going to the Academy Awards, and they have, what, the red carpet in our culture, right? And so all these people walk down the red carpet, and they're wearing the most extravagant dresses or, you know, the kind of fashion. Everybody's making all these comments, and they're taking pictures. It's almost like a scene like that. They're walking in amid great pomp. Their outward appearance was obviously quite impressive. I would imagine they are dressed in their finest kind of clothes they have at that time. They're wearing expensive jewelry. They're wearing perhaps a couple of crowns, this Agrippa guy. And uh, maybe his sister is. Who knows? I don't know. Have all sorts of symbols of power and wealth. And here is Paul standing in front of them, the opposite. He is most likely wearing the common attire of someone who makes tents for a living. And he also is wearing chains indicating that he is not a free man. Here he is standing before these powerful and privileged people who are so 
caught up in being seen as impressive by their outward appearance. They're probably making sure that they're seated in right position that shows they're in a certain status in that society because only those people can sit there. I mean, it's all part of the mix. And what are they doing? They're all seeking their own glory. And I believe what we see here is an example of the darkness of positional pride. That is, they are trying to find their glory in what they have or what they have attained to or their position and status in society. It reminds me of the sad story of the father of this Herod Agrippa II, who is recorded in Acts 12 as someone who put on his royal apparel Get this, his clothing that he wore one day in Acts 12, verse 21 and following, you can look it up, Josephus tells us that that particular day he wore a silver garment, a garment made of silver. So you take this guy out of doors on a sunny day, guess what? Everybody's sort of hiding from the glory of King Herod Agrippa I. And soon thereafter, after he takes his seat, we read in the text that having made this statement with this impressive garment, which he must have been saying, he's top, the garment says what? Look at me, right? The garment says, I am a superhuman. I am a person of elevated position and power and prestige. Give me the glory. Give me the accolades that I deserve. That's really what that statement is saying. However, ironically, it says in the text of Scripture, after having his audience who sees him and beholds him, and then the audience begins to feed his ego by saying that he sounds like a god the way he speaks. Well, they just sort of repeated that for several times uh, in his presence. And then what happens? The angel of the Lord, we read, struck him dead right there. And the text goes on to tell us why. Chapter 12 of Acts, verse 22, because he failed to give the true God the glory that he alone deserved. Now, what I'd like us to notice in midst of all of that darkened way of thinking and dark kinds of longings of their hearts, would you notice in verse 23 of Acts 26, the word pomp is actually the Greek word from which we get the word fantasy. It's word fantasia. Fantasia. It literally means something that is fleeting, something that is passing away, something of momentary interest only. What's he saying? Luke, I believe, is recording in a very clever way that all of these politicians, all these prominent people in that culture, the things that they're holding on to to justify their existence, the things that they're trying to find significance in their life and to find worth was superficial. It was all transient. It wasn't going to last. All this pomp is only going to last a brief time. It reminds me of all the, the gold 
artifacts and the glittering royal symbols that were buried with King Tut, right? The child king, the teenager. And oftentimes in the kingdom of darkness, those who still are living in the kingdom of darkness, they are often attempt to pad their ego by status symbols, things that they try to gather around them, whether it's certain brands of handbags or certain kinds of clothes or certain types of jewelry or cars or whatever it is. None of these things, however, are going to last. And sadly, that's why Jesus talks about, in the parable of the soils, the deceitfulness of riches. Riches sort of can convey to people, I am significant with this wealth, this power. I have all this assets, therefore I can do pretty much whatever I want to do. And the deceitful is, no, you can't because it's not going to last. Maybe you've heard about a weird television show called Strange Inheritance. Sort of strange. Because the story is about people who collect or gather all these artifacts, things that they think are valuable, and then they give it over to somebody, and this person's like, I've got all this stuff, including somebody who had collected a collection of not just a couple hundred, but 250,000 arrowheads. What do you do with that? 250,000. Or the person who invested a million dollars into a miniature train set. What do you do with that? Or the person who collected uh, a miniature hand-carved circus. Pieces of circus, you know, like all these different, remember, 60,000 pieces of it in a miniature circus collection. What do you do with that? The point is, the lady says at the end of the show, she says, guess what? You can't take it with you. All whatever you think is so valuable that you invest your time and money and assets, in it, it's not going to be able to something to take with you. So the point here is that what is the light of the gospel say when there is such a, a, a false sense of security and riches or position or power and this kind of attempts to try to hold on to prestige? Well, the light that Paul shined among these well-dressed folks who are trapped in darkness, the darkness of their pride, was the gospel of grace. The grace that tells us that Jesus took on our sin, in a sense, he takes on our sin-soiled rags of our unrighteousness, and in exchange for those who repent and, and believe upon him, he then gives to us his silk, spotless, stainless robes of righteousness that are ours to wear permanently as his people. Instead of vainly attempting to somehow try to elevate our importance by our own good works, by our achievements, by the things that we try to acquire as status, status symbols, the gospel instead freely places onto our account, who are spiritual paupers at the time, the good deeds of Jesus are put onto our account on the basis of grace through faith. And we become heirs of Jesus Christ when we enter the kingdom of light. 
we share in the inheritance of Christ. And part of that inheritance is what? Is that we'll share one day in the glory of Christ as we too will be glorified. It's unbelievable how incredibly wonderful the gospel is. And yet to some people, I really have no interest in that, they think, because they're so deceived. Notice that the second element of darkness we see in this text under this heading of pride is that not only will we one day share in his glory, but this encounter of the darkness of intellectual pride. Intellectual pride. One of the evidences of a darkened heart of pride is an unwillingness to face the truth. You notice that? Here this governor Festus, now we've already had Festus, at first it was Felix, Felix then it was Festus, and uh, Felix waited around two years, nothing happened. Festus comes on the scene, he's doing all these things, but he still is not taking the action he needs to take. He brings Agrippa into it. Anyway, he's listening to this presentation with Agrippa, and he interrupts. Look at verse 24. So rather than facing the truth, he hears the story about this, the resurrection of Jesus repeated again, and his reaction is what? He accuses Paul of being a person with not all of his marbles. A person who is crazy. And notice that he attacks the messenger rather than responding to the claim of the messenger. The message of the messenger. No, he talks about the messenger. And so he tries to shift the focus from Jesus' uh, resurrection from the dead to the state of Paul's mind. Some people, rather than being exposed as being wrong, they will attack their opponent, attacking their opponent's competency, attacking their motives, attacking their looks, attacking their intentions, anything they can attack instead of dealing with the actual substance of the matter. King Agrippa joins into the discussion and he adopts another tack. He refuses to answer Paul's direct question. He says, okay, King Agrippa, look at verse 27. Do you believe the prophets? And that was a great question because he's put into a very difficult situation. If he says no, then that's a problem with the Jews. If he says yes, then it means he should really concur with what Paul's saying. So he acknowledges Paul's argument was persuasive, but he was unwilling to answer the question. He dodges it. And he talks about saying, well, you know, Paul, you are persuasive, but I don't want to give in to your message. I don't want to surrender to the truth that would have exposed the fact that I am rejecting the fact that Jesus Jesus has risen from the dead. He is God's Messiah. He is alive now, and I need to deal with him on his terms. No, he says, I don't want to deal with that. So he remains in his rebellion against God. He doesn't want to admit he's wrong either. He didn't want to admit that Paul was right. He didn't want to give up his position of political power. He doesn't want to leave his sin. He doesn't want to leave the darkness of where he is. He doesn't want to become a Christian. Again, I go back to that scenario of the cave analogy. How sad it is when people are given opportunities to hear and learn more of Christ how they choose to say, no, I'd rather stay right here in this darkness. I don't want to leave it. Agrippa, like so many people that we were trying to help to share the gospel with, he wanted to believe what he wanted to believe. 
He wanted to avoid bringing to light that his beliefs were obviously either illogical or they were erroneous or illegitimate or whatever. He didn't want to have to deal with all those things. And notice what Paul did. Paul brings light to the situation by reminding his listeners that the events, look at verse 26, the events that took place in Jesus' life, that is, his good deeds, his life of ministry, uh, three years, his death on the cross was a public event, and his resurrection from the dead was verified by 500 eyewitnesses. He says all these things took place out in the open. These things are not hidden. The essential doctrines of the Christian faith, including the resurrection of Christ, are rooted in history. Matter of fact, the Christian faith is not based on hearsay, it's not based on myths, it's not based on wives' tales. The Christian Christianity can stand up to examination regarding its truth claims. For example, Paul's own testimony, as he's giving his testimony about his own story, a former Pharisee who was out persecuting every Christian he could find in every city he could go to, he provided it in such a way to show that at one time his devotion to Jewish legalism was extreme. It was well known to all of the Jewish leadership as to how passionate he was about this. He was like a wild animal. He was a person who was driven with hatred, a violent passion to and do what he could, could to bring harm to those who followed Jesus. And so that raises the question, how do these Roman rulers, how do all these highfalutin Roman uh, uh, military folk, how do they understand the changes in the man who stands before them, giving them this testimony? It's clear that Paul's love and commitment to Jesus were obvious to any person who has had any form of objective understanding of what was going on there. Not merely did Paul hesitate, he, didn't hesitate, he did not hesitate a bit to confidently cite and to pronounce before them the scriptures, the word of God, because he was seeking to win the great and the small, didn't matter who they were, eventually it got back to what the scriptures taught. And we should do the same, obviously, because the scriptures are true. They are sufficient, 2 Timothy 3.15, to impart wisdom that leads to salvation. It is through the scriptures, 1 Peter 1 says, the living, imperishable word of God is that is how people are born again. And so Paul brought the scriptures, he brought a life that had been changed before them, his own story, and sadly, in their darkness, they rejected it. May I point out another point here? First was the light of darkness. The light was brought to the darkness of stubborn pride, but secondly, part of sharing a gospel is that it involves shining the light into the darkness of stubborn devotion to idols. Idols of the heart. I don't know if you caught this as we read through the account of Paul's conversion story in verses 4 to 18, the big chunk of what we read. But he adds an interesting insight that is not recorded in any of the other accounts of Paul's testimony. 
But look at verse 14. Jesus, when he confronted Saul, at that time an unbeliever, unbelieving Pharisee, why are you persecuting me? Notice, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? What's a goad? Well, a goad is a sharp stick. Imagine you're a farmer, you've got two oxen attached with a yoke in front of you, and they are carrying your cart forward, and you've got to get from point A to point B, and you're like, let's get moving, folks. Let's get the going, oxen. And the oxen are just standing there, just looking at each other. And they don't want to move. And you're saying, move forward. You give the direct command, and then you get a goad. A goad is, okay, this is going to be a little unpleasant, and to kick against the goat is, to, is to, as if the animal's kicking against the stick, as if, I don't want a goat, you're going to go. And so Paul is being reminded by Christ that during the dark days of your pre-conversion time, it's foolish to think somehow you're going to resist what I am calling you to do because I and far greater than you are. Paul's darkened heart one time was set on an idol, and the idol for him was winning the approval of other people, winning the approval of God by being a person who has all this self-righteous religious devotion that he was very much consumed with. His passion to gain standing before God and other people captured his heart to such a degree that he could put to death, he thought he could put to death the church of Jesus Christ, which Jesus, the risen one who overcame death, who said, I will build this church. He thought he could do it. But I also believe, if you look at verses 10 and 11, that Paul's conscience was goading him about the part that he played in Stephen's murder. He stood there, held these jackets, he was a witness, and all these people were stoning Stephen on that occasion. I think that bothered him. I think that was goading him the whole time his conscience was saying, you did wrong, man. You did wrong. Listen to that guy's testimony. He was reciting even the words of his Savior. Into my hands I commit my spirit. You see, the darkness of heart idolatry deceives unbelievers into thinking that they don't have to submit to anybody. They assume that they can, because of their own rights, if you, were, if, you, if you will, that they can be autonomous, that they can live their life any way they want, and that there are, will be no long-term consequences of living any way I choose to live. But I, friend, the gospel light that Paul presented to all these other individuals made it clear that his heart was no longer under that control of that heart idol, the heart idol of self-righteousness through religious devotion. Why? Because that idol was destroying his life. It was dehumanizing him. And I would challenge you, read back through the book of Acts and notice that Paul, prior to becoming a believer, was an out-of-control maniac. And you read the scriptures and it clearly says that oftentimes he was, required, he was a person acting with such furious anger. He was like a wild animal. Read about it, Acts 9, that's the way it's worded. He foolishly thought he could resist God. And 
there is, my friend, there is such great pain and sorrow and anguish of heart of anybody who, who refuses to submit to Christ and refuses to take up their cross and follow him. There are serious consequences to that. And Paul proclaimed the light of gospel truth that needed to be proclaimed to these individuals that the way to find life is to die to self. Did you catch that in verse 20? The liberating gospel that Paul provides to these individuals, these highfalutin, prestigious, uh, powerful people, is that God requires all of us to repent and to turn to him. Instead of defying him, instead of resisting his will, we are to perform deeds that are appropriate to repentance. Not just recite some words, not just say, oh, I'm sorry, God, but have a change of heart, a change of attitude towards sin, and no longer desire and love sin, but love Christ. He becomes the treasure that we love and live for. In your notes, I've given you a a couple of comments by J.I. Packer about repentance. He says it's changing one's mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are changed and one's whole life is lived differently. The change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly, mind and judgment, will and affections, behavior and lifestyle, motives and purposes are all involved. Repenting means starting to live a new life. And that's why Walter Chantry in his book on evangelism talks about the fact that in gospel repentance, it means more than just confessing of our sins to God. It's not enough. There must be a full purpose of heart to turn from the former life of sin, to walk in a new path, path of righteousness. People of darkened thinking assume that all is required is to merely ask God for forgiveness. Oh, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me, they think. But this way, if someone does this as a deceived unbeliever, they think that they can continue in their sinful lifestyle, in their old ways of life, and then just somehow will add Jesus to the mix, and Jesus will become a personal, personal hell insurance policy for the world to come. No, no. You cannot enjoy the pleasures of sin and the joys of eternity, my friend. The change of mind which issues indefinite turning away from sin is the heart and soul of true repentance. And Paul says, you've got to let go of that heart idol. You've got to make Christ the one that you love the most. The assumption that there's nothing wrong with serving idols and serving Jesus instead. Some people think, oh, I, I can't give up these idols. I'll just give, maybe I'll have, hang on to these idols and I'll serve Jesus at the same time. You can't do that, my friend. Why? Thinking that way indicates that the idol has blinded you. You're not seeing very clearly. You're deceived. It is Jesus who talked about repentance, his first sermon. It is Jesus, it is the apostles who talk about repentance, including Peter on the day of Pentecost, including Paul numerous times in the book of Acts. It is the proclaimed necessity that you must truly repent along with placing faith in Christ. Scriptures say, Proverbs 28, He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoever confesses 
and forsakes them shall have mercy. Praise God. You see, gospel evangelism includes the essential element of proclaiming that Christ saves those who repent and turn away from sin, relying completely on Christ alone. I'm reminded of Jesus' statement about the man who found a treasure. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field in which a man found that treasure. He hid it, and from joy over that finding of that treasure, he goes and sells all he has, and he buys that field. My friend, there is great joy in letting go of whatever we have to let go. You think any of those boys and that soccer coach minded leaving behind anything else they brought in that cave in order to go with those folks to get out of that place? They didn't mind leaving it behind. Why? Because there was far greater treasure getting out of there. The same is true. Would you notice just real quickly one more insight here, and I'm done. In the first opening verses of chapter 26, did you notice what Paul said in verse 2? Here's a man who's been unfairly held, unlawfully held, for two years, now with about the fourth procedure of some kind of crazy system he's trying to defend himself when he's done absolutely nothing wrong. He's innocent of all these matters. He's appealed to Caesar. He's still sitting around. He's still telling people all of his story. And there he is. And rather than being filled with resentment, rather than being a person who's frustrated, rather than being a raging, angry man who he was like for years and years prior to his time of becoming a believer, would you notice instead of being complaining and being about how miserable it is, being a servant of Christ or bitter, verse 26, verse 2, he says, I consider myself fortunate. I consider myself fortunate. My friend, that is the perspective of someone who's been set free from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and who's able to share that light with other people because he's not living for himself and his idols. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would Help us to be more aware of the true issues that are at work in spiritual battle in this world. We know, Lord, that it's easy to be deceived by the the deceiver, by Satan. He loves to keep people's minds blinded to the glory of Christ in the gospel. And my prayer today is, Lord, you would open the eyes of anyone who's here today who is caught in a situation in which they are compromising. Perhaps they are trying to say, oh yes, I love Christ, but I'm not giving up this part of my life. And there's some area in which an idol is just as much, if not more important than Christ is. I pray that, Lord, you would help them to see they are deceived. And you're calling them to repentance and faith, even this day. And Lord, for those of us who are in the the kingdom of light, help us, we pray, to have greater compassion for those who are still in the kingdom of darkness. Give us a heart that loves and serves, speaks the truth, that helps them to see there's far greater treasure in Christ than there is in anything this world has to offer. Lord, help us to keep being faithful and to see ourselves as fortunate to be called to be your witnesses wherever that takes us. 
and leads us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.